We all have questions about the Bible. At Milwaukee Chi Alpha, we want to take the questions we have about the Old Testament and use them to get us closer to Jesus and what we're calling the XA Learning Hour. And we strongly believe that if God is real, if what we believe is true, our questions will lead us back to Him. So let's start this journey in the XA Learning Hour, questioning the Old Testament. Today's topic is who is God in the Old Testament? Which may seem like an interesting question because like isn't God God? And that's true, but I think we often struggle with God in the Old Testament. We don't know what to do with the Old Testament, with God within the Old Testament, which is why we're having this learning hour, right? Um, so I want to ask... Um, We're about to look at this passage, starting in Exodus 33, and it's a passage describing God's glory. And I want to ask, how would you describe God's glory? Other words that come to mind are uh, powerful. Powerful, yeah. Holy. Holy. Yeah, other thoughts? People kind of agree with that, have different words that come to mind. I mean, I think this isn't like right, I guess. I can't put quotation marks in recordings, but um, like that is like brilliant in terms of even like mm. shining mm-hmm. or overwhelming to your own senses. Yeah. Overwhelming to your own senses. This is the passage we're about to look at. Exodus 33 takes place when Moses is up on Mount Sinai talking to God. So we think, you know, we think of, I think, often like the clouds, the billowing clouds. Moses comes down with a radiant face. Um, I think this is some of the imagery that comes to mind. Other words that you would, how would you describe God's glory? Well, oh, sorry, go ahead. I guess the word that came into my mind is, I guess, magnificent. Yeah, magnificent. I think that's another good word. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all these words are kind of there. We've got a similar vibe going on, powerful, magnificent. So we're going to look now at Exodus chapter 33. We're going to read all of chapter 33. It's not super long. And then the beginning of chapter 34. But what we see here is this is the first time God describes himself within the Old Testament. And not only that, this becomes a defining passage for who God is. The Israelites, the Jewish people, if you were to ask them, like, who is God? Like, this is the defining passage where he reveals himself to Moses. So that's what we're going to read now. A bit of context. In chapter 32, um, the people have built a golden calf. You probably have at least heard that story. The Israelites are in captivity. They're enslaved in Egypt. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God says, watch me. And eventually the people go and they cross the Red Sea. And this is a very short synopsis. Somebody's going to listen to this and be like, actually, and that's okay. So then they're at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses is up 
on Mount Sinai talking with God. The people are down. They're starting to freak out. They said, slavery was better than this. Like, we're going back. And Aaron builds a golden calf, and they worship the golden calf, and God's not happy at all, understandably so. And this is kind of where we pick it up. Moses has gone back up the mountain right after this to talk with God. So I will read Exodus 33, starting verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. So this is, this is the promised land that, we're, that is being referenced here. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went to the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to himself, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? We're going to pause here just a minute and look at verse 15 and 16. So what we have here, if you're tracking with us, God says, you guys are stiff-necked people. What a great insult that is. You're stiff-necked people. Mm -hmm. You go ahead. I'm fulfilling my promise. I will still give you the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, don't send us from here if you're not willing to go with us. What a powerful statement that Moses says, I would rather stay here in the desert with you than receive your promises without you. Like Mm -hmm. That in itself is so powerful. So we're going to keep going. We could have a whole other discussion on that. I just wanted to point that out. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come out on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herd may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning. As the Lord had commanded him and he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. This is where we start to see the description of God. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, and he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We're going to stop there. A lot is happening here. This is a really awesome story. I encourage you, you can keep reading. We see later on when, G, when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is so radiant that people can't even look at his face because he has seen God's glory. He has seen the back of God as it is described. And so Moses had to wear a veil in front of his face. Uh, but what we see here... So we see Moses says, show me your glory. And God's response, I will make my goodness pass before you. Mm -hmm. Moses says, show me your glory. And God's response is, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I think this is a passage we probably have read many times over and not really thought about. But when Moses says, show me your glory, we think of power, we think of magnificence, we think of the mighty acts, the mighty hand of God. But God says, let I will, my goodness will pass before you. We think of smoke and judgment, but God says, I will show you my goodness. And I think that's so important for us to hear that God's glory is his goodness. God's glory is his goodness. When Moses asks, I know I've said this like five times already, but it's so important for us to grasp. Yeah, thank you. Say it again. Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. That is how we can define his glory. In this passage, so Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Again, this is a passage that has become the defining statement of who God is within the Old Testament. This is how God describes himself. This is how biblical authors and scholars have defined God within the Old Testament. In fact, this passage, verses 6 and 7, 7 is referenced and echoed throughout the Old Testament at least 27 times within the Bible. It is the most quoted passage in the Bible by biblical authors. 
which clearly shows its importance. So again, verse 6 and 7. And he had passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining loves to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. So I want to look really quickly at this last line because I think it's really easy to read this and read the last line and we're like, oh, can this stop? Can we just cut out this last line? Can we just cut out the judgment element? But it's here and we need to address it. The gospel or the, yeah, the gospel writers as well as Old Testament writers embrace this passage. So we at least need to discuss it. And it's very clear. So it's talking about maintaining love to thousands, to generations, um, and then punishment to children and their children to the third and fourth generation. And if you look at um, what scholars say, so my sources today are a lot from the Bible Project as well as the Bible background commentary, both for the Old and New Testament, as well as a book called Gentle and Lonely. Okay, so we see again at the end, he punishes the children and their children to the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's important to know here that this is for generations who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. This is not God saying, like, oh, you sinned, so I'm going to punish your grandparents. This is what we see as a natural consequence. Like, our sins, we pass them down to our kids. Like, I'm sure you've all seen, and um, Progressive has these great commercials of people accidentally turning into their parents. Like, this is just a fact of life that we pass these things on and so God is a just God and this guilt goes on to generations who repeat their ancestors rebellions against God they get what they deserve essentially that if you follow in your ancestors footprints you get the same thing because God is a just God. So for the original readers, this would not have been a hang up. This would have been a reality. This would have been something that they saw play out that we see play out today, but it's intentionally written with sharp contrast to the thousands of generations in verse six, that while we see sin passed down from generation to generation, we often see it gets better as the generations go on. God talks about maintaining his love to generation after generation after generation as he forgives wickedness and rebellion, as he is slow to anger, abounding in love, compassionate and gracious. And this last line, though we often want to skip over it, it's important because it shows the tension between his justice and mercy, which we could have a whole nother session on this, but we know that God is a just God and a merciful God and pulling those together is so hard and we feel that tension because when one is enough enough and one is mercy needed and, and we feel that tension, we should feel that tension because we are not God and it, it's a hard tension to feel. And so this passage within God where he is slow to anger and yet he is also a just God, there's going to be tension here and this is a good thing that this is acknowledging this. Mm-hmm. But as we look at the rest of these verses, Um, Like a lot of passages, Jeff talked about this last week with Genesis 1. 
as a poem and how intentional the authors were with the literary format of it. This passage is the same. There's a lot of, if you look at it in the original, if you kind of break it down, it's very intentionally thought out in the literary sense. For the sake of time, we're not going to look into that, though if you want to, the Bible Project has a video on that that breaks it down in a really cool way where you see the images reflecting or the passages reflecting themselves. But the passage starts with God giving the people his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, he says it twice. Names are significant. God speaking his name, showing his name to Moses is a significant thing here. And the first two words, what are the first two words that we see God describe himself as? In verse 6. Yes, compassionate. And what's the second one? Gracious. Yeah, compassionate and gracious. The first two words he used to describe himself are compassionate and gracious. Does anybody know or anyone remember how Jesus describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine when he talks about my yoke is easy, my burden is light? It's one of the books you referenced. Yes, it is. He describes himself as gentle and humble. So we see, we see God describing himself as compassionate and gracious and Jesus describing himself as gentle and humble. And these, this is not a coincidence. This is not an accident. This is an intentional thing where Jesus is showing himself to be God. So we have this compassionate and gracious, this gentle and humble God and Jesus both being a part of the Trinity, both being God. And Jesus, we, that, we can get on board with that. Like Jesus being gentle and humble. Yeah, we know that. God, we struggle with that imagery at times. But here God describes himself as compassionate and gracious. We also see very intentional covenant language within this passage. He is reminding them of the covenant he has made with them that he will eventually fulfill. We're, we're at one of these weeks going to talk about the covenant between God and the Israelites, between God and Abraham, and I'm so excited. But for today, within this passage, he's using covenant language to remind the people, like, we have a covenant. I have agreed to be your God. I have agreed to look after you, to care for you. And eventually, when the people cannot fulfill that covenant, Jesus comes and fulfills it for them. So his, he's very intentional with his covenant love, loving kindness, his covenant language. And then we also see, as we've talked about, this connection back to Jesus, which at the time, the Old Testament writers didn't know who Jesus was. They knew about the Messiah. They didn't know about this connection. But the authors, Matthew, intentionally calls back to this and says Jesus and God are one and the same. They're both parts of the Trinity. And I want to explore... Um, I want to explore a little bit the gospel writers. I know this is a class on the Old Testament, but I think to fully understand God in the Old Testament, we have to connect it to the New Testament. And I want to look at John 1.14 for anyone who wants to turn there. But before we do, well, okay, John 1, this whole chapter, it's the whole, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. John's point here, if this is confusing for you, the God, John's point here is to say Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I would say clear for the original readers, this would have been a very clear point that he was making. It may seem a little confusing as you read through it, but the word became flesh in 14 
is talking about God. Jesus became flesh. But when Moses says, so looking at Exodus really quickly, and when Moses says, show me your glory, before saying, my goodness will pass in front of you, before that he says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So instead, he's put in a cleft, God's glory goes by, and he sees the back of God's glory. You cannot see my face, because you cannot see it and live. So here we have in John 1, 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have here, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you look at this one verse and compare it literally to Exodus 33 and 34, John is making direct references, paralleling. I can show you um, a chart later for anyone who wants to see it, but making direct references and paralleling Exodus 33 and 34 so that anyone familiar with that passage cannot miss that John is saying this is one and the same, that Jesus and God are both God, that Jesus is God. And what's really awesome here is Moses could not see God's face. And yet here we have God incarnate. We have Jesus for the first time showing his face to humanity. His glory is being revealed in a new way that people had not been able to see before God and earth. And this would have been a mind-blowing idea for people at the time. We also see full of grace and truth. Jesus is described here as full of grace and truth, which is a callback to Exodus 34, compassionate and gracious. So John is pulling out saying, this is who we know God to be. We know that God is compassionate and gracious and Jesus is the same. Jesus is God. I know this is a lot. Does this kind of make sense? Are people tracking with this? Does anyone have any questions so far in all of this? Wonderful. Yeah, so we see that the words grace and truth are are echoing the same grace and truth, compassion, compassion and gracious we see in Exodus 33. But one of my favorite references to this is in the book of Mark. So a lot of this comes from, you can find this lots of different places, but in the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, he talks about this and he says that Mark in chapter 6 and a little beyond is also referencing back to Exodus 33 and 34 and reflecting those passages to make it very clear. And so what he says is you have, you have all these, you have a, um, you have a miraculous feeding in both, you have a discussion of the Sabbath, you have God's representative leader, um, you have a couple other things, and then you have God showing his glory, which we see in verses 6 and 7. Um, and then you have a couple other similarities, radiant face, all that stuff. But when you look at in Mark, when you look at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, this is a direct callback to Exodus 33. Um, so let's, I need to pull it up, but let's look at Mark chapter 
six quickly. Okay, so we're just going to read verse 45 to the end of the chapter. We have a lot of scripture today, but I feel like that's a good thing, right? We're talking about I can't believe reading the Bible. The Old Testament when you're talking about the Old Testament. I can't believe that we're reading the New Testament oh gosh, in a right. class about the Old <laughs> Testament. Come on, just kidding. Um, so, so Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went on a mountain to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. So it continues, Jesus climbs into the boat. But this passage here, in verse 48, it says, he was about to pass by them. This is, um, it's just kind of an odd, it's just kind of an odd statement. You know, like he was about to pass by them. Like, why was he about to pass by them? This is a, again, a direct callback to Exodus 33. Because if you look at the Greek Septuagint for the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, this term, to pass by, parachomai. So this word here is the same word, he's about to pass by, is the same word used in the Greek Old Testament when God is going to pass by Moses and show him his glory. So this isn't how we think about it as passing in the hallway. We pass, we pass by someone, we ignore them, whatever. This is an intentional callback to Jesus is showing them his glory. Because when God passed by Moses, which we see said four times in those two chapters in Exodus, he passed by. That is how God shows Moses his glory. And so here, Mark does an intentional callback and says Jesus was going to pass by the disciples in order to show them his glory. He's making a statement of who Jesus is. We see this again reflected a few chapters later in Mark chapter 9 with um, the, um, oh my goodness, I totally forgot. Oh, what is that called? Um, man, I forgot the word. No, the um, they're on the mountain. Moses and Elijah appears. Transfiguration, that's the word I'm looking for. We see this again in Mark chapter 9 with a transfiguration where there are specific calls back because Jesus, the gospel writers are making it very clear that Jesus is God incarnate. Um, and I had a quote from a book that I was going to read, but I forgot the book. But I'm going to essentially sum it up that Jesus is the incarnate God, that God's glory, which we could not see face to face, we see in Jesus walking on earth, that they are one and the same, that to know Jesus is to know God. And so for the gospel writers, they're trying to defend that Jesus is God, like he is the son of God, like he is who he says he is. But for us who have a lot easier time accepting Jesus and a harder time with God in the Old Testament, realizing that Jesus is the incarnate God, to know Jesus is to know God. That verses 6 and 7, that he is compassionate and slow to anger, that he is merciful but just. This is who God is. 
this is who God is. And I will probably send that quote that I forgot to you guys because it was a very good quote, and I'm sad that I forgot it here. But, um, yeah. Any questions on this so far? That's wild. Right? Isn't it crazy? I remember going through that. I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> that he was going to pass by? Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, what is that? What's he trying to do there? Well, and this is, the Bama Project points this out, and Jeff talked about this a little bit last week. If there are things in the Bible that don't make sense, look it up, because it's probably really cool. Like, we, you know, we, that's one of those things that's so easy, we want to just look past it, it doesn't matter, like, oh, Jesus seems like he's being mean, why would he walk by them? And yet, it's a specific callback. Okay. So we cannot talk about God in the Old Testament without acknowledging some of these big questions we see. Because it is easy, or a lot of people read, in general, actually, they read parts of the Old Testament. Parts of the Old Testament are stories from the Old Testament. And look at all these awful things that we see in the Bible and wonder, how can God be a good God? How can God be compassionate and slow to anger with all the things that we see? So I want to look at a couple of those examples. We can't cover them all specifically today. But I want to hit a couple of them. The first one I want to look at is the Israelites coming into the promised land. We're already looking at Exodus chapter 33 and 34 before they, I mean 40 years before, but chronologically before they enter into the promised land. But what does God have to do in order for the Israelites to take their inheritance of the promised land? Who's in the way of them having the land? The people living there. The people living there. And I'm sure this is not the first time. I'm sure nobody here is like, oh, yeah, that happened. I'm sure all of you have realized that the promised land they were being given were full of people. And God's like, that's okay, just go take the land. And we read through this, and it's really easy for us to be like, what the heck? Like, has anyone ever questioned that before or wondered, like, What's happening here? Maybe some people are like, no, I've never thought about that. That's kind of awesome. (laughs) So now you're thinking about it. Um, But this is one of those stories that we easily look at and we're like, okay, so God promised this land to Abraham. And hundreds of years later, the people go to take it and there are people there. And God says, yeah, but the land is yours. I've given it to you. And we can read through that and be a little bit confused or a lot confused. Or maybe you've had people question you on that. But I want to look at Genesis 15, 16. This is God talking to Abraham. So again, Abraham has been promised this land. But God says not yet. You cannot have it yet. So Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And as you're reading through this, like the people are not about to take this land. This is a really easy verse to miss. But God specifically says, wait, you cannot have the land yet because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God waited. God knew that he was going to give Abraham this land. God knew that in hundreds of years, the sins of the Amorites was going to be so bad that we would find it incredibly detestable today. I think sometimes we have a hard time with God, like, giving out judgment. But then when you realize, like, oh, these people are, like, sacrificing their children to gods, like, maybe we we can get a little bit on board with, like, yeah, that was a problem. (laughs) 
Um, so God waited. God waited hundreds of years giving these people time to repent and turn to him. Even though he knew that one day their sins will be this bad, he was not going to preemptively wipe them out for the sake of his people. He waited and he gave them time. And during that time, we see Abraham's descendants there in Egypt. All this story that we're talking about happens. And we often, we don't like the times when God shows his justice to people. But honestly, if we really dig into it, I think we, we have just as, much isu- just as many issues with the mercy he gives. There are stories, you look at the end of Judges, you read through the end of Judges, and man, we want those people to receive justice. We want them to receive full punishment. But God is patient. God is patient. And that shifts, that greatly shifts this narrative that we've heard about the Israelites coming in and taking this land. And there's a lot more here. I'm not expecting this to be like, oh great, now I understand this passage. There's a lot more we could dig into. But just noting how the context changes, that God just didn't at a whim say, let me knock these people out the way so you can have the land. No, he needed to address the evil that was happening in these nations. Yeah. Can I add something to this? Yeah, add to it. Um, I also, like when I went through um, Jeremiah for the first time, I looked at like uh, what was going on in like Kings and Chronicles. And like, it was like years where Israel was just like doing really bad stuff. And God was like, stop. And they didn't. So like... Reading just if you just read one passage of God's judgments, like, oh, that's a little harsh. Yeah. But then you realize this. Oh no, this has been going on for like absolutely years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in this case here, we see hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm sure somebody knows. I know it's at least four hundred years. We see God is slow to anger. He's waiting. He is patient. So I another another thing I want to look at quickly. As we look at God in the Old Testament and stories that we often have a problem with. Um, there are bad stories in the Old Testament. Like, if you turned the Old Testament into a movie, like, I don't think I would watch that movie. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of really bad things. And I think we look at these stories within the Bible and take issue with God because of them. So we referenced this story early, earlier. But the end of Judges, the end of Judges is horrific. It's awful. This Man has visitors come. This is in a synopsis, very short version. This man has visitors come, and the village comes, and they say, we want these men. Give us these men. Like, give us these men. We want to do what we want with them. And he says, no, 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 you cannot have these men. Here, take my daughter instead. So sends his daughter out to an angry mob of people who rape her all night long, and in the morning she comes back and falls dead on his threshold. So then what he does is cuts her into pieces. I'm so glad this is going into the podcast. Just kidding. Cuts, them, cuts her into pieces, sends her to the different tribes of Israel and says, look what these people did. And so then all the people are like, this is horrific. This is awful. Let's go kill the people who killed this girl. And it's just like, it's awful. It's horrific. It's like one of the worst stories in the Bible. And it's there. And how easy it is to look at this story and say, what the heck? God. What the heck? But this is what we need to keep in mind. Just because a story is in the Bible, it 
does not mean God approves of what's happening. The beautiful thing about our Bible is that it acknowledges the pain, it acknowledges the mess, it acknowledges the crappy, evil things that are done in our world. Just because a story exists in the Bible does not mean God says, yeah, that was good. It doesn't mean it has a stamp of approval. In fact, there are some stories that happen and nothing is mentioned. And then books later, it talks about how awful this event was. And you're like, oh, I'm glad the Bible acknowledged that because I thought it was fine. Like, <laughs> but it's just something we need to keep in mind. Like, these stories are not in the Bible to show how awesome God is. These stories are in the Bible to show how screwed up people are and how much we need God. How much we need God. And also remembering, too, we come at the Bible with a very different intent where we want to know how things happened. The Bible authors, they want to know what happened and why. So the Bible leaving out any judgment that God brought does not mean judgment didn't exist. It means the authors were trying to get across a different point. And in this story in particular, the book of Judges, God is setting up the book to show us how much we need someone other than ourselves. And stories like this do not mean that God is not good. The next story I want to look at, um, this story is great. Probably most of you have heard it. Noah's Ark, right? Like, we, <laughs> you've not heard it, not familiar with it. She lies. <laughs> no, so Noah's Ark, which the great thing about this story is it's a story of everyone dying and we're like look kids look at all the animals going into the ark <laughs> jesus saved the animals <laughs> it's one of those stories we learn about in kids church and it's like a happy story and then you grow up and you're like oh people died like and it's one of those stories that i think people point back to and say hey what what's this about god what is god doing And so I I just want to look at this story really quickly. And something to note, we are not the only religion or the only people group who have a flood narrative in our history. Many other cultures and religions have a flood narrative in their story. This does not diminish our flood story. It actually emphasize it in some really cool ways at some point there was a flood whether it was around the whole world whether it was just their current day world of the of that area we don't know and hopefully whichever it is that doesn't shake our faith because god is god but at some point there was a flood and different cultures and religions tried to make sense of it through their own worldview and so here we have noah's ark and what's Beautiful about the story of Noah's Ark is when you compare it to the other narratives in that time. So another narrative is a Gilgamesh mm-hmm. epic. So in this story, in this narrative, you have a council of gods who essentially are so annoyed with people. They're like, hey, let's wipe them out. So they have a secret, secret council where they decide to wipe out all the people because the people are just that annoying. Great reason to kill everyone right 
So they decide to kill everyone. But one god has a favorite man on earth, so he secretly tells this man, hey, this is what they're going to do. Build a boat. This is how you can get help doing it. Save yourself. Save your family. Um, but don't tell everyone, anyone because, you know, you're not supposed to know about this. You're supposed to die too. So the flood happens. Everyone dies, but this one person lost one family. This, you know, there's similarities here. He first sends out a dove, which comes back. Then he sends out a sparrow, which comes back. Then he sends out a raven, which doesn't come back. And at the, other, at the end of the story, the other gods realize that this man was saved. And they get really mad. And they're like, how did you do this? Like, you ruined our plan. All the humans were supposed to be dead, and now they're not. And then eventually this man goes and offers sacrifice. And the gods realize, oh, okay, maybe this is a good thing that he's here. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess this worked out okay. Great confidence in their gods there. Um, yeah, so this is one of the common stories, ancient stories that also mirror a flood. But we see major differences here. We see major differences in the motivation and the relationship between God and the people. Again, this is just one flare flood narrative. You can go look up a ton more. I can send you a website of a ton of different flood narratives. Very interesting. But we see a difference in the motivation and the relationship between God and people in the story of the Bible and the other flood narratives at that time. What we see is our version of the story is the only story of a God who cares and has relationship with his people. While the different stories have different reasons, whether it's annoying, whether it's noise, whatever it is, we see in the biblical account that God cares about people. And it's not, he's not doing it out of vengeance. He's not doing it because he's annoyed. He's doing it because in Genesis 6, 5, he saw that um, every intention and the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually. He saw that men, their intentions, their heart were so evil that he had to do something about it, which is so different than every other story where the gods are just vengeful or mad or annoyed. We also see that it grieves God's heart. The evil grieves his heart. All of this grieves his heart because he created earth as a place for humans to flourish and instead they're doing evil against him against each other and against his world. We also see at the end God making a covenant with Noah, with Noah's family, to restore them, to restore humanity. Our story stands out in contrast to all other flood stories of that time. And again, even now, like a lot of this just seems so weird and odd because we have such a different cultural view. But when... When this story was written, people would have read this story and seen the difference in Yahweh, in our God, versus the God of every other flood narrative. That he is a loving God that wants to be in relationship with his people. And this is a God that the Israelites saw, a God who is loving and compassionate and slow to anger. And it's, again, it's easy for us to read the Bible 2,000 years later and take issue with God. But we need to remember the people in the Bible, the people in the Old Testament, 
who lived through the things that we only read about, they knew God as a loving and compassionate God. And it's important for us to remember how the people who experienced this life experienced God within their culture and their context. There is so much more we could go into here. And I'm not pretending that we have wiped away all the questions of Noah's Ark or any of these stories we've talked about. Um, I realize each of these topics could have like days on end in themselves. So this is just a nutshell to hopefully help you see things a little bit differently and help you appreciate the context and help you to appreciate who God is within the Old Testament and who the people within the Old Testament would have seen him as. And so I want to read again verses 6 and 7, God defining who he is. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. But to end, I want to bring us back to chapter 33 in Exodus, which we discussed. When God said, go ahead to the promised land, but I'm not going with you, Moses' response was, don't send me from here if you're not coming with me. Because God, Moses saw who God was and saw God's promises, which were good, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses saw who God was in God's glory and said, I would rather have you than the good things you give. Challenge for us to end this week with. If you want to be with us live for the XA Learning Hour, come to the UWM Student Union, room W145 at 1.30 on Thursdays. Thanks for listening.